Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Almost anyone listening has experienced sexual harassment or assault or knows someone who has. Public conversations often start when a high-profile celebrity, sports figure, or politician is accused, and the story ends up in the news. In the last month, attention surrounded a leaked video of Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump, who was caught speaking about women in a manner that elicited disgust. Today, where we live, we're focusing on the stories of women who've experienced harassment or assault and who have, been, who have kept quiet until now. Why do women and girls feel like they can't talk about it when it happens? Later, we'll be joined by a counselor who will discuss how adults should talk to kids about sexuality and having respect for others. We'll also hear from a director of a program that started at Yale, which helps schools talk with children about their emotions. But first, I'm joined in studio by three women who have at some point in their career worked as journalists. The industry involves interviewing people in power, people who sometimes abuse that power. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, email where we live at wmpr.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now in studio is Christine Palm. She's Communications Director for the Commission on Women, Children, and Seniors. Thanks for coming on, Christine. Good morning. Also, Jennifer Frank, a writing consultant with years of experience as an editor and reporter in Connecticut and the New York metro area. Nice to see you, Jennifer. Thanks, Lucy. And Catherine Blinder, a freelancer and chief education and outreach officer at the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection. Thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Lucy. I'm going to start with Christine because you actually approached us wanting to share your story and the story of some other women you know. Um, what prompted you to come forward and, and talk about being sexually harassed and assaulted at some point in your career? What happened was that the national debate, I think, has opened a vein of how deeply this kind of behavior is in our social DNA. And we talk a lot about misogyny, but none of us knows the opposite of misogyny. What is the fear or hatred of men called? The answer is misandry, not a word that comes off the tongue. So it opened up this whole concept of how common is this misogynistic behavior? And I, uh, a couple of friends on Facebook had posted experiences they had. So I reached out to Jennifer and Catherine and some other of my journalist friends to say, has this happened to you? And not surprisingly, almost to a one, they said yes. So we thought maybe this is something worth talking about. You um, mentioned, obviously, there's a lot of attention uh, you know, on the news. Um, there's always, the, it seems, more often than not, it involves a politician, the latest being our Republican presidential nominee. But, you know, it's painful often to talk about um, these experiences that have happened to many of us. Um, talk about something that you recall from your career and how you worked through wanting to be public about it, finally. It's many, many years in the making. Um, briefly, when I was 19, I worked at the Hartford Times, which was then the Daily, worked with Jennifer, in fact, and uh, I was trying to finish my abandoned bachelor's degree, um, and I was going to school at night, and I needed to drop a class because it conflicted with the local planning and zoning commission meeting that I had to cover, so I went to the professor, um, who was then about 50, I would guess, and said I needed to have an incomplete and drop out of the class. And 
instantaneously, he got to his feet, pulled down the Venetian blinds of his office, and rammed his hand up my skirt and said, we can work something out. And I jumped up and left the room and told him in no uncertain terms where to go. But what I didn't do is I didn't report it. I didn't go to the administration of the college and complain, and that's something I've always regretted. Years and years later, it came back to haunt me when I was finishing my BA at the age of 50, and there was a big old F on my transcript that could not be removed because it required the professor's permission. So that's my story. What made you not want to come forward when it happened? Was this something that your, you know, your parents had talked to you about, or did you feel like because you were a, a young woman and no one would believe you? I think in that era, my parents, like many, were products of that of that generation where you didn't challenge authority, especially if it were professors, priests, um, those in power. Um, to be honest, I just felt a righteous indignation. I wanted to get back to work. I, I didn't particularly feel um, self-blame or doubt. I had a little bit of an attitude. I had a reporting job. You know, I wasn't going to let this guy bother me. The regret came later because I thought of all the women who came after me who perhaps felt victimized and, and couldn't do anything about it. But no, I don't think talking openly about it at the time or sometimes even now was something that we did naturally. I'll turn to Catherine uh, Blinder. Tell me about some experience you had. So like Christine, I was a teenager, and my uh, then-father-in-law got me a job at the Minneapolis Star Tribune opening a new children's page. So my very important job was judging crossword puzzles and children's art. But it was my first job, and I was probably seven months pregnant. I dressed what I thought was very professionally. I walked in. The editor poured me a glass of scotch and sat down on the couch next to me. And um, I deferred to uh, the glass of water that was next to it. And he said, he put his hand on my thigh, and he, I said, I'm not drinking. And he said, well, you won't always be pregnant, and I hope we can be friends when your body is back to its lovely shape. And again, I was so happy to have this job that I spent the next year avoiding him, hiding in bathrooms, hiding behind other people. I told no one. And for me, the fear was, so this is 1967, the fear was not that I would be fired. The fear was that I would be blamed. That's interesting because we just heard from Christine who, you know, she felt anger and she didn't want to feel like, you know, this was her fault. It wasn't. But you felt differently because of the context of, of the fact that you'd gotten this job and you were a young reporter? Yeah. Yeah. And my father-in-law got me the job. So there was that added responsibility of pleasing him. Uh, yet another powerful man. And Jennifer, I'll, I'll turn to you to share uh, your story. Well, I was much older at uh, when when this incident occurred. I was 22, and <laughs> much uh, older. And uh, I um, I was a reporter for yes, the Hartford Times, and I covered education in a uh, prominent suburb. And uh, a, a man I had covered got a promotion, and there was a new program, and I thought, oh, easy Sunday story, great. I, uh, he said, gee, I'm working at home uh, tomorrow. Would you mind stopping by? I'm 22. I am, I am 22 going on 12. And sure, sure, I stop by on my way in. I meet his pregnant wife. 
and uh, she no sooner leaves than I am being pushed against a wall. He is looming over me and saying, I am sure you don't, I'm, I'm, uh, what do you say? <laughs> and uh, I said, I say no, and fled. And uh, But I went back to the paper. I needed a Sunday story. I called him and uh, continued with, had my interview and got my story. That must have been so difficult to have to go back to this man who propositioned you because you had a deadline. You had a story to write. had no choice. Right. I, uh, that's what you do, and that's what you did, and that's what you do now. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me are, are three Connecticut women who are talking about instances of sexual harassment and assault during their careers. Uh, we're talking about this in the context of the latest news about politicians and celebrities accused of, of sexual assault and misconduct and how these stories, with the help of social media, are encouraging other people to come forward to talk about something that many of us feel that we have to keep private. I wanted to turn back to Christine Palm. Again, she's communication director for the Commission on Women, Children, and Seniors. And, you know, what I find really interesting about this conversation, Christine, is, you know, so often, you know, we're all women. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, breaking the glass ceiling and being having successful careers, we think about a lot of the adversity um, many women that we know in different professions have to go through to prove themselves because of their gender. But as journalists, I mean, it's it's interesting that we're put in this position where, you know, we have to do a job and at times, people in certain authority figures, you've, you've all experienced this, that take advantage of that authority. And what do we do when we have to finish the job? I think the happy news is that women are discovering their voice. And the, the power that we have is in our sisterhood. That's perhaps an overworked um, term. But I think it's more important now than ever because we, we need as a society to stop this artificial divide between attractive women and not so attractive women, um, women in, in careers that can be easily sexualized, like celebrities, like uh, TV journalism, like models, and versus women behind the scenes or in public policy or print journalism or anything, um, there it's it's an artificial divide, and it and it serves no purpose except to give more power. To, to the uh, abusers. And I, I wanted to just say one word about the spectrum of behavior. I think it's important to acknowledge that this kind of um, sexual predation can range from a mild and, and sort of hard to pin down to assault and stalking and rape. And what I think we're talking about a lot is it's not, you know, as, as the mother of four sons, it's not about a young man or, or a man of any age trying to, you know, get somewhere with the women, trying to make an overture, trying to get a friendship or a, or a relationship started. It all needs to start somewhere. What I'm talking about is powerful people using their position against people in a subordinate um, position. And, and for any of men listening who are not natural allies, I would say think about how you would feel if a man grabbed you. You know, we talk mostly about men um, being predators against women, but if you put yourself in that position and see it as a power dynamic, I don't think too many men would want another man just grabbing their genitals, grabbing their buttocks, making a quid pro quo uh, arrangement with sexual harassment to get a job advancement. And yet somehow when women are on the receiving end, 
we tend to divide up into camps, and I think we really need to stop doing that. Can you talk about um, the tendency to victim blame and how that plays into um, the, the feeling that women feel like when this happens to them, well, there must have been something I did, or I, maybe I was giving off the wrong right. impression? Right. Well, there is, there is a known fact. Those of us who work in public policy um, around women's issues know that uh, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, up to 70 percent of these assaults are never reported, and that's partly because of um, a lack of consistency in reporting criteria, but it mostly has to do with revictimization and blaming people who come forward in a way that you would never get blamed if your car got stolen. You wouldn't necessarily unless you left the keys in it, etc. So so the the tendency to blame the victim is is ancient. I mean, it, it's in again, it's it's in our social DNA. It's in our art. Um, you know, when Medusa was raped by Poseidon in Athena's temple, Athena turned Medusa's hair to snakes. It, it's ancient, and in its um, it prevents women from coming forward for fear of being uh, not believed, blamed, um, and shamed. And and we need to, as a society, as as public policy people, as people in authority, as journalists, as parents, we need to just really move that needle away from that victim blaming. Yeah, if I could just add one thing to what Christine's saying is, but I think there's also a class issue here. I think that women who have never experienced power, the three of us sitting here have at some point in our lives due to all kinds of things, whether it's education or experience or age, have some, even I think when we were young, had some privileged position Absolutely. But for women who have no language for it, who literally have no language for that sort of belittling language or that demonizing effect that having a powerful man saying something or touching you in an inappropriate way, it's not just that you don't feel you have that no one will listen. It's that you literally have no language for it. And I think that that is an element that disempowers a whole population of women. In studio with me are three women who are sharing their stories of sexual harassment and assault, events that happened much earlier in their careers. They're among women nationwide who are starting to come forward to talk about these experiences, experiences they've kept private until now. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation with them, and we're going to speak with a child counselor about the ways adults, including parents, should be talking to kids about these issues. We ask that you join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I was a kid in 1991 when Anita Hill testified that she was sexually harassed by then-Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. I remember watching her testimony on television and hearing things I didn't quite understand. My parents were also in the room. I never asked them to explain what was going on, and they didn't offer an explanation either. 
Fast forward to 2016, and these stories are still in the news. How do you explain them to your kids? That's one of the questions I have for our three guests in studio. They're women who've experienced harassment and assault in their careers. Recent news events compelled them to come forward to talk about what happened to them. And they're here to explain why the moment is now, years after being harassed and assaulted. I wanted to turn back to one of my guests, Jennifer Frank. She's a writing consultant with years of experience as an editor and reporter in Connecticut and the New York metro area. You know, I've been talking a lot about harassment and assault. And I wanted to ask you, when we're talking about assault, what does it mean? It means many things. Absolutely. I, and and I, I did want to say that it's, it's more than women uh, uh, or, or people being in a, in a perhaps uneven situation in terms of power. I mean, uh, uh, many of us, I, I think, uh, have been in a situation where the, the, an assault occurs and you are blindsided. I mean, not that, that any of us with notebooks or, or microphones expect it, but you're, you're, uh, I was talking recently, a friend of mine was uh, on, a, on a train, and uh, a man ca- ca- sat next to her, and <laughs> next thing you knew, she had to get up and, and move because of uh, what he was doing. Uh, I, I, th- I think that what's one of the many things that's unfair is this unexpected. You're you're in your zone. You're 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 doing what you're doing. You're thinking about whatever you're thinking about, and wham! Out of nowhere, this this surprise assault comes. And uh, you know, at at this point, I think at at for Christine and Catherine and and me, we would be furious. And but when you're younger, it's it's there's the embarrassment, there's the shame, there's the 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 shock, and then the need to process. And you process for weeks, so there's all that energy. So I, I it can it can happen anywhere. As sad as that is, and it does. I wanted to ask you, Jennifer. You know. When you were growing up, is this something that um, you know you felt comfortable? Did your parents talk to you about what assault and harassment was? You're laughing because I, I think I know the answer. But how oh, did every night, Lucy? <laughs> but how did your upbringing change how you parented your kids? Well, I, for, for for me, it was I, I was very focused intellectually. You know, I have to get. I have to and 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 the fact that I have a body really wasn't that important. Uh, I don't think it it came up. I think my mother, uh, I know my mother would have been embarrassed to to bring this up. Um, and now, as a parent, I have a I have a son and a daughter. They're both in their twenties, and um, we've talked about it. Um, I, I think for me, and I don't know what what Catherine or, or or Christine would say. We haven't discussed this, but I, I was shocked at how early the issue came up in my daughter's life. I mean, she was a you know a young teenager, and I when you know things started happening, and and I thought, whoa, I was not prepared for that, and I don't feel like I did perhaps protect her to the extent I should have. Catherine? Yeah, I think that's true. My kids are older, um, and and the answer to my parents was absolutely not. As horrid as it is, I came from a family where I heard, not to me, 
but to another female relative, my grandmother say, if you're ever raped, you should just lay back and enjoy it. And I don't think that that was all that unusual in that class and in that place. Um, So my kids grew up on a hippie commune. You know, there wasn't a lot that wasn't said. But looking back on it and knowing we were going to be here today made me think about it. I don't think I ever had... We talked about power. We talked about about feminism. We talked about, you know, this was during the Vietnam War. It was when things were happening that showed them that there were power clashes. But I don't remember ever having that direct conversation, even though my son knew, like Christine said off air, I would throttle him if he did anything untoward um, towards a female. But no, I don't think I ever had the really clear conversation. We um, sent out a tweet and a message on our social media uh, Facebook account also um, asking our listeners, do you talk with your kids about sexual assault and harassment? And we heard from one listener, uh, Cynthia from West Hartford. She's on the phone right now. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Hi. So uh, tell us, um, you know, how do you have these conversations at home? Well, usually what I do, and I've done it so often now, my daughter says, says, I've heard it all before, Ma. Um, But... When something local comes up, you know, in Connecticut, in the Hartford Current, because we do, as a family, read the Hartford Current, um, I, you know, I'll talk to her. And, you know, she always accuses me. She says, you're blaming the victim. And it's like, well, honey, I can't talk to you about, you know, what she might have done differently or how she might have defended herself. I mean, no, it's always the guy's fault. Hmm. But, and yes, we are changing the culture but you're 16. It's not going to change that fast, you know. And even when it does, there's still going to be a few creeps out there. So, but I will, you know, show her an article, a paper, and say, you know, X, Y, Z, um, you know. And that's that's how I talk to her. And um, also, it occurred to me while I was listening to the show, my daughter actually has, in fact, already been sexually harassed. Um, in her classroom, in school. And um, I told her to deal with it because she told me what was happening, and I was shocked. And I said, look, you have one day to deal with this. And she was being very clear with this boy. She would say, you cannot touch me there. And he just, it was like talking to a brick wall. And I said, you have one day to deal with this, or I deal with it. And so she and another girl who were in the same situation Um, confronted the boy in the hallway and used words that I assume they had learned in some sex education class that he understood, and it kind of got through the brick wall. And he was alarmed, and and he stopped for a while, but then he started up again. And I said, okay, now I have to take over. You know, and I contacted the teacher, who was, of course, horrified that this was going on in his classroom (laughs) while he was teaching. Um, And then as I told him a little more about what was going on in subsequent emails, because he was going to talk to take the boy outside and talk to him and say, you know, look. And the teacher said, he said, I have a four-year-old daughter, and if anybody ever, you know, talked to my daughter that way, I don't know what I would do. I'd really admire your restraint. And he asked my permission. He said, can I go to administration with this? And I said, please do, because this kid is going to break the law. If this is what he is doing in a classroom while class is being conducted, what is he going to do in a car? What is he going to be doing in a dormitory room? Um, You know, so please do. 
and so they did. But, you know, I mean, this was, she was a freshman in high school sitting in her own high school classroom being touched and spoken to inappropriately. But it's, anyway, that's, I use the newspaper articles. But that's what I was listening to all this. I was thinking, yeah, my kid actually already has been through this. And she was 14. That's interesting. You said that you, um, you know, you let her have the opportunity to address this well, on her own. she's very strong. She's yeah. like me. Um, you know, she's got a very strong personality. And she was, you know, clearly using the right word. You cannot touch me there. It's hard to be much clearer than that. Well, thank you, Cynthia, uh, for talking with us. You know, it's interesting. Cynthia mentions that she uses news articles as a, a way to start the conversation. Um, and that's interesting because there are, there are, there's also the belief that maybe we should shield our kids from this stuff until they're of a certain age. But when is ever the acceptable time, Christine Palm? I think that as kids develop and you can see where their interests start to go, it's a message that is never, never too early. We talk to all kids of, of, of both any gender um, about strangers that you know the, the 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 lurking stranger who will harm you physically, one of the things uh, that's so interesting and difficult in terms of prosecuting um, sexual assaults is that there are these different standards for the harm that is done, and the psychological harm can last a lifetime. So in my case, with my four sons, they grew up knowing how to respect women. Both my husband and my ex-husband are feminists, so as fathers, they're wonderful, and they're wonderful examples of how to treat women. Not everyone is so fortunate. Um, I did want to pick up on one thing your caller said, which, which rang a little tiny bit of a bell. It sounds like she did a great job. But when the teacher said, oh, I have a four-year-old daughter, the narrative needs to move away from that women are somebody's daughter, somebody's mother, somebody's sister, somebody's grandmother – Women's autonomy needs to be based on the fact that we are women, not as defined by our family role. That's been going on forever, and from the laws of coverture in England, it needs to stop. And a childless woman, a, a motherless woman, a husbandless woman still has the right to bodily autonomy. You know, I wanted to bring into the conversation, again, we're talking a lot about the interplay between men and women, but harassment and assault happens against men. Harassment and assault happens in same-sex relationships. So I know, Christine, you do training um, as part of your, you know, your job at the commission. You know, how do we um, talk about this you know, that impacts all populations? Uh, good question. The interesting thing, and, and Catherine knows about this too, she does these trainings as well, the interesting thing about sexual harassment awareness and prevention is that the law, in a very unusual and perhaps unique way, cares not at all about intent, cares only about impact or the perception of the behavior. So that for every sexual predator who says, well, I meant it as a compliment, no one can take a joke, I have a crush on her, that's irrelevant in the eyes of the law, both state law and federal law. It's illegal under a Title IX, under the Civil Rights Act, under several statutes in Connecticut. And what the law looks at is how the person feels by the behavior. And even if it is innocently done, the, the standard we use if it's pervasive and unwanted. So to get back to the caller's uh, daughter, if the kid keeps doing it, you know, making a pass at someone once is not sexual harassment. It's optimism. When you keep doing it after you've been told to stop – it moves into a whole different thing. So part of the trainings that we do is to help managers of companies and, and state agencies recognize how to keep this out of the workplace because it causes tremendous morale problems, um, mental illness, and worst-case scenario, you know, huge financial loss. 
And later in the show, we are going to talk about school climate and where these conversations need to happen. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about sexual assault and harassment today uh, with three women who are sharing their stories. Christine Palm, Communications Director for the Commission on Women, Children, and Seniors. Jennifer Frank, um, who has been worked as an editor and reporter in both Connecticut and the New York metro area. And Catherine Blinder, who's a freelancer and chief education outreach officer at the State Department of Consumer Protection. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to read a couple of tweets. Um, Kristen writes, as a pastor, I talk with my youth about this, but over the course of 20 years, parents were still not talking to them about sex at all. Uh, Mara tweets, proud of colleague Jenny Frank and neighbor Catherine for sharing their stories of harassment on air. It also happened to me. And she's someone who's worked um, in the industry as well. And I wanted to bring into the conversation um, Maggie uh, Rauschy is a licensed professional counselor with the Clifford Beers Clinic in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, her focus is on kids and teens who've had trauma and who have problems with sexual behavior or sexually reactive behavior. Maggie, welcome to the show. Hello. So we were talking a little bit earlier about the conversations that parents should be having uh, with their kids when you see these high-profile stories in the news about something that's not easy to talk about, and that's sexual harassment and assault. Um, talk, about, talk through what you do um, in your line of work and you know, your, your advice on how parents should be talking about this. Well, in my line of work, I work primarily with teenagers and um, currently with teenage boys. Um, and one of the main things that we do in our program is we do um, teach boys what actually is true consent. Um, now, when they're teenagers, they're, it, the conversation is different. Um, but we've also worked with much younger kids and their parents um, talking about how you can introduce some of these concepts when they are at a much younger age. That must be hard for parents to hear that. The idea, I mean, the way we're brought up, I know my generation, I mean, we didn't talk about this. My parents didn't talk to me about any of this. So the idea of talking about them at a young age, I mean, how do you get buy-in? Well, we focus a lot on what's foundational to the idea of consent. Um, For instance, you know, things that are really um, things that would feel much more comfortable to parents, such as uh, the idea that all bodies... Uh, deserve respect and people's feelings deserve respect. So, um, you know, some of the very early things that parents can do are to teach their kids uh, about their bodies, um, how to show respect for their own bodies and other people's bodies, and to teach their kids to pay attention to their own feelings and the feelings of other people. Um, And that is a a very important building block, which you could tell would... um, really help with developing some of the more sophisticated ideas about sexual consent. Uh, We got a tweet from a listener, Dave. Um, He writes, start early by not forcing them to give hugs and kisses to relatives. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think you can do this just in the everyday interactions, whether it's um, at family gatherings, uh, coming up with a different way to say goodbye to people, Um, and really following your kid's lead and accepting their answers of, no, I don't want to do that, um, and not forcing them to do anything with their body that they don't want to do, down to hugs and kisses. Um, And I I think another way is also just to use the 
caller, Cynthia, said that she, with her teenagers, uses actual articles and news stories. But with kids, I think you can also use um, storybooks or stories that are the plots of um, the movies or the shows that they're watching um, or play, the different roles they take on in their play. Um, there has been a lot of talk in this conversation so far about power, and you can point out to kids um, the power that the different characters show and how they use their power. And does that make them seem like a villain, or does that make them seem more like a hero? And I think all of those concepts are really foundational to the idea that later becomes consent. I'm speaking with uh, Maggie Rauchy. She's a licensed professional counselor with the Clifford Beers Clinic in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, today we're talking about sexual assault and harassment in the context of, as we hear more and more about this in our conversations, uh, in the news that we consume, uh, it gets conversations going about what's happened to all of us in our past. Um, I wanted to take a quick call. George is calling from Stanford. George, you're on the show. Yes. Uh, there's so much assault on males that is never brought up. I'm not minimizing what's done to females, which is widespread and disastrous. But, for example, 80% of American males have been sexually mutilated as soon as they're born, within a few days. Circumcision, which is very damaging to the penis and to the psyche. It's a lifelong scar, both physically and emotionally. And I speak from experience. Uh, this is never brought up. And what is wrong with our culture that we allow this? Well, thank you, George, for bringing up that point. I'll let uh, Christine Palm uh, answer that. Again, she's with the Commission on uh, Women, Children, and Seniors. We did bring this up a little bit earlier about that assault and harassment doesn't just happen to women. Right. Setting aside the uh, the circumcision debate, which is currently um, a, a very valid question, I think you're right, George, that men perhaps feel their own kind of shame about not coming forward um, and it is important in, in our sexual harassment trainings, we do make a point that women actually can harass one another and can harass men. Subordinates can harass superiors. It doesn't happen as often. The EEOC says about 85% of sexual harassment complaints are from women and men are the abusers. But I think it is a really valid point and that we, and I appreciate the callers bringing it up, we do need to empower boys, whether straight or gay, to also have this bodily autonomy and to um, feel comfortable coming forward when they too have suffered this because it's very damaging as we learn from the widespread calamity of um, priest abuses within the Catholic Church. Uh, we did get a tweet from a listener, uh, Scott, who writes, I teach my son to be respectful to all people, regardless of gender, race, etc. A man opens a door for a lady, never violence. And so that speaks to the uh, the power of just in parenting. It starts early um, in the, the way that we you know teach our children to interact with others. Catherine? Yeah, and I, I think going back to, I don't remember her name, the, the mother who called um, with the teenage daughter, Two things. One, good for her to say to her daughter, I'll give you a day, um, giving her that power to deal with it. But she, she, she made me think about the continuum of behavior. So if we allow a six-year-old to behave in either a disrespectful or even violent way that is based on gender – and no one says anything until he's 12 or 13 and still exhibiting that kind of behavior and then becomes an employer at 50 
who has enti- his entire life has been told that it's okay to treat women in that way. So the idea of interceding at a really young age, and I love the idea of using storybooks and looking at the powers of the characters, but but we we accept behavior early because it's cute or it's mimicking grown-ups. Um, and I think in, interceding in that way at a really young age is really, really important. I want to turn back to our guest on the phone, Maggie uh, Rauchy, a licensed professional con- counselor with the Clifford Beers Clinic in New Haven. Do you want to respond to what Catherine Blinder was saying about um, just how we speak to our children? Uh, yeah, I think the whole idea of boys will be boys um, does get kind of ingrained early at times. Um, and I, I think... As parents, um, we have our power sort of dwindled <laughs> as the kids age. Um, we have the most impact, I think, in terms of how much kids rely on us um, when they're at their youngest. And so I do think um, that it's so important to prevent that track that she was, or that traje- trajectory that she was talking about, where a six year old. Um, gets permitted to do something and then it, it manifests in different ways as that child grows older. Uh, I think it's a, a great opportunity to intervene early. And it's so much better for that child, too, um, because engaging in those behaviors takes something away from their life as well and their ability to genuinely connect to people and, you know, see the impact that their behaviors have on others. Now, Maggie, you mentioned earlier that you work um, often with uh, teenage boys. And when you have these kind of conversations, are they surprised when, you know, um, you know you're working with them that there's certain things that are said or certain jokes that are made that really aren't appropriate? Absolutely. Um, I work primarily where I do a group with teenage boys. And so um, it's really good to have Um, The part of the power of the group work is hearing each other's perspective. Um, But we definitely have had moments where, you know, we stop and ask when something like the phrase boys will be boys is used, and we stop and really think, what does that mean, and talk about it. There's definitely surprise. A lot of these ideas are so ingrained that even by the time a kid is a teenager, they've really accepted that as the way that things are. Uh, but it's also a really good opportunity because the task of teenagers is to question everything. So we try to use that um, impulse to start encouraging them to question these things um, so that they can start thinking of people as all deserving of respect and thinking about how maybe some of these these ways that they've learned from our culture aren't really honoring that um, that idea that everybody deserves respect. And Maggie, before we head to break, you had mentioned earlier sometimes using um, storybooks and to help with the conversation is a, a good tip for parents. Can you walk us through um, a story that would be good for parents to start with? Um, I would say, I mean, I think so many of our stories have the idea of um, good guys and bad guys, and maybe that's sort of oversimplified, um, but the idea, any sort of villain is usually a villain because they're making these mistakes. They're using um, their power in such a way that it hurts other people. Um, So I really think 
there's so many things that you could choose from and just start asking questions. You know, who does the kid seem, who would the kid want to be around in this story and why? Um, and how would they, how do they think the different characters felt? And all of that can sort of build empathy. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that there's really, <laughs> there, I think the sky's the limit with that. There's so many stories that have um, things that you could you could really start this conversation with. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about sexual assault and harassment. In studio with me are three women who wanted to share their stories. We're going to continue this conversation in the next break. We're going to talk about the role in schools um, in helping our children uh, navigate their emotions. And we want to take your phone calls as well, 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up Thursday in a world of buzzing smartphones, endless meetings, and persistent deadlines, how can we be more in tune with ourselves and more creative in our endeavors? On the next Where We Live, we'll talk mindfulness and creativity in the 21st century. That's Thursday. Today we've been talking about sexual harassment and assault and why some adults have felt comfortable coming forward now to talk about their past experiences. I wanted to take a call from a listener. Ellen's been holding from Newington. Ellen, you're on the show. Yes, I am. Um, I, uh, I have had experience, and uh, I, I used to write for a newspaper years ago. My first job was working for a small newspaper in the Hartford area. Oh, I think we lost Ellen. Uh, so while we wait for her, I just wanted to go to our guest who's on the line, uh, Dr. Robin Stern, Associate Director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and a psychologist in private practice. Dr. Stern, are you on the line? I am. Good so, morning. Good morning. And I know that you actually work on a program that started at Yale that helps uh, children with emotional intelligence. Can you talk about that? Sure. So at Yale, um, we know that emotions matter a great deal. Think about it. Um, just between the time you woke up this morning and right now, how many different emotions you've had, right? And, and emotions matter for five different areas of life, in fact, for all of life. Attention, memory, and learning, decision-making, and judgment. Have you ever made a bad decision? <laughs> and and if, if you say yes to that, um, like we all have, of course, uh, how, how many of you think that your decisions have been driven by your emotions? When we make bad decisions, that's often the case, and, and that's part of what the show is talking about today, or people are talking about. So attention, memory, learning, just backing up. The first area that emotions impact is uh, decision-making and, and judgment. Second area, third area is relationship quality. Fourth area is physical and mental health. And the fifth area is everyday effectiveness. And so um, our approach to emotional intelligence uh, teaches us how to be smart about our emotions since we know they matter a lot for those areas of life. And emotional intelligence is um, the, the attitude, knowledge, and skills we have about um, emotions. And we break it down into the acronym RULER, mm -hmm. recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing, and, and regulating emotions. And so how and, early, I'm sorry, Dr. Stern, how early, um, what ages are you working with? So we're working with preschool through high school. And we start in the school systems. Everyone with a face, is, we like to say, um, gets 
the uh, the training in rulers, starting with the adults. We know that we start with the leaders of the leaders of the districts, the leaders of the schools, and then um, bring in a training team, including teachers and and often mental health workers and other school leaders to then train and learn the skills themselves and model those skills and teach those skills to students and bring in our tools uh, to the classroom and the school at every um, part of the school community. So um, if I understand this right, you're helping kids from an early age understand their emotions and ways uh, to walk away if need be when something happens or to ask for help uh, where we're not hiding um, and letting these things kind of fester inside of us? That's exactly right. Very well said. Thank you. Um, We're teaching kids from the earliest of ages to recognize when they're having emotions and to be able to label those emotions accurately so they can uh, communicate them effectively and then to regulate them in one of any number of ways that can be successful, either talking to themselves and in a positive way and so that they can get out of a situation that's uncomfortable or so that they can best choose a strategy to, to manage their emotions in a different way and, and or to ask for help when they can't manage something themselves and they're uncomfortable in a situation or they're feeling very angry or very irritated or very annoyed and they want to, to act in a more positive way and don't know how to do it themselves. Are you seeing more school districts that are interested in, in having this kind of training in the classroom? We've reached a real tipping point in this country, and we are we have um, our our trainings are completely full, and we have people on a wait list to do our trainings all over America. We're in a thousand schools, well over a thousand schools at this point across the country, and in dozens of schools around the world. And we know that it's a time in in our world where anxiety and tension and, and uncertainty is driving people to, to really understand the need for bringing these skills in to the classroom at the earliest of ages so the kids grow up with a better understanding of themselves and other people and with the skills to effectively relate to others and to, to manage their own emotions. Well, I want to thank Dr. Robin Stern. She's Associate Director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and a psychologist in private practice. A really interesting program. It's good to hear that this is the kind of training that's happening in schools today. Thank you, Dr. Stern, for your time. You're welcome. And feel free to go to our website, ei.yale.edu, to learn more about our program. Thank you so much, Dr. Stern. We just have a couple more minutes. I wanted to take some calls. Laura's been holding from West Hartford. Laura, we just have a couple of minutes. What's your question or comment? You know, um, my name is Laura Cordes. I'm the director of the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence. And, you know, I just wanted to thank you for doing a whole program on sexual harassment and sexual assault. Uh, We can't be talking uh, enough about this because certainly victims and survivors have been paying attention um, if they're going to be believed, if they're going to be supported. And I wanted to thank uh, your guests for sharing their stories as well. Um, We operate 24-7 hotlines throughout the state, um, and I'd like to share that number for folks, even if you've never told anyone, even if it happened a long time ago. uh, We're here for you. We believe you, and free and confidential support is available. Um, That number is 1-888-9995545. And I also love that your guests are talking about education in schools. Um, Many of your listeners may not know that this fall, 
uh, Connecticut has a new law where school districts uh, K through 12 are required to provide sexual abuse awareness and prevention programs. Um, those are programs that are member programs, the nine rape crisis centers throughout Connecticut have been working with school districts on, and we're just going to see um, improvement, not only in helping to keep um, young people safe, but also to prevent the first-time perpetration of assault. Well, thank you, Laura. We'll have those resources on our website, delimpr.org slash where we live. Another quick call. Peter, you've been holding from Stanford. Uh, real quick. Uh, yes, I, I'm uh, pleased uh, that uh, Dr. Stern talked about leadership because uh, I, my uh, choice for the presidential election was for the leader of our country, and uh, the uh, actions that the Republican uh, has done has uh, obviously uh, has, uh, made my choice clear of who I'm going to vote for. As a male, you know, I'm going to vote for, for uh, you know, Ms. Clinton because, uh, you know, it's just uh, – it's, it's a shame that – and she was talking about leaders in the education and also in the political. It all filters down from, from the, the White House, and I'm – I'm glad uh, uh, that, uh, you know, you're addressing it today. Well, thank you, Peter, for your call. I wanted to read a couple of tweets. Uh, Matt writes, uh, regarding respect, teaching our son to de-gender titles, police officer, not policeman, firefighter, uh, no fireman, etc. And Vicara tweets, terrible twos is a time when children are taught saying no is bad, especially girls. Let's reverse that. So thank you for your tweets. And I, I do want to thank uh, Maggie uh, Rauchy. She's a licensed professional counselor with the Clifford Beers Clinic in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, she was on a little bit earlier talking about um, you know, how to talk with kids and teens about um, communicating emotion and you know, what is harassment and assault and what's right and what's wrong. Um, Maggie, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Lucy. I was very glad to be a part of this important conversation. And, uh, you know, I wanted to thank, uh, again, the women that were in the studio today. It's not easy to talk about these things in public, but there's definitely a purpose. It, it empowers people uh, to talk about what's happened to them and uh, change um, how our children are treated in the future. So, Christine Palm, Communications Director for the Commission on Women, Children, and Seniors. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Lucy. Also, Jennifer Frank. Uh, she's an editor and reporter in Connecticut and the New York metro area. So good to see you. Thanks, Lucy. And Catherine Blinder, freelancer and chief education and outreach officer at the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection. Uh, we did run out of time today to talk about um, a lot of, you know, a very hard conversation to have, but we are going to have those resources on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Um, and we hope that you'll continue the conversation on our Facebook page, our Twitter page, at where we live. And we thank you for listening.